another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm one of your hosts here, Nate Larkin, and uh, joining me again via the worldwide uh, interweb is a giggling Aaron. What's well, so funny, Aaron? You, if you go back and listen to your welcomes, besides the fact that they're yeah. really loud, so it often is distorted, uh, you you have so much energy, and after you say Pirate Monk Podcast. It's like you've deflated and go, oh, all right. So we're. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. I probably should go back and listen. That, you know, that is kind of like one of the clues. Well, one, of, one of the good strategies for improvement is actually to evaluate what you've done. Uh, and that, that's a step I most often uh, omit. Yeah. Well, good. Good luck. I can't say that I like going back and listening to anything I do. <laughs> Oh man! Well, here we are. It's we're we've just passed the summer solstice, twenty twenty. We're cruising on toward the first of July. Uh, the seasons have changed. The seasons of life are changing. They're changing for. Uh, Ooh, you're waxing an philosophical. That I know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. indeed. Talk, talk, talk to me about some seasons of change in the porterhouse, will you? Well, we we have. Sent off our first child from the house this morning at 5 a.m. Oh, Samuel man. was packed up and uh, is driving to California. Let's see. It's one. Six, seven, he's been on the road for about nine hours, I guess. What is, I can't see my clock. Ah, yeah. Almost nine hours. Last I talked to him, he was just pulling through St. Louis. Wow. So, okay. So he's taking the northerly route. He is because it's. Like technically only like two hours more and no offense to the part of Texas you drive through in New Mexico and Arizona, but there's a whole lot of nothing going the southern way. <laughs> yeah, sad, but true. It, yeah. it is a long, it feels like a long drive. So yeah, yeah. Um, obviously have those fatherly worries about my son taking a 35 hour road trip by himself. <laughs> He's never yeah. done anything like that. Um, but yeah, he is moving back to the central coast of California and Jenny took me in his bedroom. She had already put a rocking chair in there and started setting it up as a guest room. So oh, really? Yeah. I think it's a version of nesting where it's like, hurry quick. Uh, let's not make this look like my, my baby just moved out. <laughs> let's, let's pretend yeah. this is just a useful space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my question. How, how is Jenny handling it emotionally? And yeah, what, what are you feeling as you watch the kid fly away from the nest? Uh, yeah, I, I think because he's 20, I, if this had all happened, you know, two weeks after he graduated from high school, I'm quite certain I'd feel different, but th that was such a great time in my life to leave oh home, yeah to move down to los angeles to LA, yeah moved down yeah. to los angeles uh got new friends which obviously he's moving back to old friends but just it was such an adventure and yeah. so i have such a great joy for him right now mm -hmm. knowing that he's moving into this phase of life and i think because he's 20 i'm feeling like yeah it it's time you know, if, if he was living at home because he needed to, because he was doing something else that required it, fine. But I think it's just time. And so I'm mostly 
just feel really excited. And once he actually arrives there safely, I'll feel all excited. Yeah. But I will yeah. say this morning, I, I did, and when he drove away for those first couple hours, I just thought, wow, uh, my son will probably never live at home again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's weird. Got to wrap my head around that. Yeah. Well, at the same time, I had a healthy dose of Cosby show feelings of yes, only three more to go, <laughs> but not because I don't love him. Right. Yeah. I hear. You. So yeah. And, and Jenny, I think has done a lot more grieving up to today and then has seemed yeah. to be better today than, uh, she's felt previous days. So yeah, oh, it's, it's weird. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I was going to maybe modify that, but I'm I'm sticking with unfortunately. She uh, had decided that she could use about half of my office as a craft room. Um, and I oh. thought, well, okay. So there's a table set up, and she wanted to. Sammy was supposed to move in August, um, right. and so she wanted to take all of the pictures of him and give him a scrapbook. So I have been walking through stacks of pictures of him at five and seven. Like that doesn't make it easier to go through right. the child's leaving. And by the way, here's his whole history cluttering your yeah. office. So that, you know, that felt like a strange strategy towards uh, happiness. Mm. So it's good. Seasons of life for sure. It is. Yeah. And uh, I, I will tell you one other story because it is so great. And I, there's no way to not give God credit for this one because it's too weird. Um, so Elijah, youngest son, do you, do you know what his greatest fantasy has been for about three years? Uh, I cannot imagine. To own a riding lawnmower. <laughs> now, he, he and I are the pretty much the only ones that mow the lawn. And okay. he enjoys mowing it more than I do. So he'll just put his headphones on and go out there and we have a push mower and an acre and a half of grass and he'll just right. go at it. Um, so his fantasy, he's even said, dad, I'm going to save up. I'd rather buy a riding lawnmower than a car. I'm like, all right, that's weird, but okay. Uh, other kids are <laughs> dreaming of Ferraris and you're dreaming of John Deere, whatever. It's good. Yeah. 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 So anyways, last week we kind of hit this painful moment because our neighbors across the road who have uh, more money than we do decided they were going to get their 14 year old son, a beautiful brand new riding lawnmower. And he was going to take over doing their lawns. And Elijah had to wrestle through the, I'm happy for him, but yeah. I am devastatingly jealous right now and sure. so we we walked through that it was good as a parent obviously i felt bad because i'm like where where can i get myself three thousand bucks to get a riding lawnmower i want to make my son yeah. happy with stuff uh so anyways we we got through that that was about five days ago and then uh last night elijah and i were helping samuel pack his car and the neighbors from across the street walk into our driveway I have never met this man. I've been so curious to. I had heard he was in the army. He looks like, you know, uh, he's got tattoos all over and it looks awesome. He looks like a warrior. Yeah. And uh, so he walks up, introduces himself. We chat a little bit. 
And then he points at Elijah and says, you the, you the young man that I always see out here pushing that lawnmower? And he's like, yeah. He says, well, I just got a new lawnmower. And if it's all right with your dad, I got something I want to give you. And his eyes start to get wide. He's like, have you seen me with my lawnmower? And he says, the one that you ride on? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> dad, is it okay if I give that to your son? Because I've just been thinking, I know a young man that could really use a riding lawnmower. And I said, sure. He said, all right, I'll go get it. Drives over this beautiful riding lawnmower. Elijah's eyes are as big as, I don't know, the oh, moon. Yeah. So he's just been driving around, remowing the lawn. <laughs> I just thought, how, how incredible is that, that we just walked through the be, be, be content with what you got. Here's what we got. Yeah. And and then it just felt like God smiled and said, all right, now that you work through that, here, it's just a riding lawnmower. I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You think those thills, hills don't need mowing? I got tons of lawnmowers in my kingdom. <laughs> oh, so, that's wonderful. Anyways. Oh, I'm so happy for Elijah, too. Yes. That's great. So next time you Fair. come over, he'll have to let you take a take a spin on his uh, his cadet. Some, on his wheels. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's great. So you did some vacationing. Ironically, I believe the last podcast you explained why you weren't going to go on vacation. And then like the next day I call you and you're on vacation. <laughs> yeah. We've kind of folded and said, all right, yeah, yeah. screw it. You need to going. stop making declarations on the podcast. I just got to say. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm going to give you another example of why I should stop making declarations on the podcast. Okay. Because I think I just, I think I declared on the podcast that I quit drinking on the 1st of February, Uh huh. <laughs> which I did. I quit drinking on the 1st of February. Uh, Allie and I decided uh, to go to the beach. We, we found a place in an island off uh, Charleston and uh, loaded up the car and moved to Beverly. We went, uh, we went down there. And I've got to tell you, my old vacation programming kicked in hard, and Allie did certainly did not resist it, and I certainly did not resist it because always on vacation, um, you know, alcohol has been you know part of the equation. So by day two of the vacation, um, I was having a beer with my wife, with conflicting feelings about it. Um, it felt good to have a beer with my, we enjoyed our time together as we always have. We played cards. It was wonderful. At the same time, I just kind of had this, oh shit feeling like, have I just stepped back into or toward a pit that I escaped from? Um, you know, so I had strongly conflicting feelings about drinking, but continued to drink Throughout the 15 days of the vacation, I found really that my consumption returned to its uh, pre-quitting levels fairly quickly. Again, I don't drink to get drunk, but uh, I was up to, by the end of it, I was up to a pretty steady four beers a day. I'd start sometime in the mid-afternoon and pick up a beer. But uh, strangely, by the end of the vacation, I was looking forward to quitting. I was kind of getting tired of it, or very much getting tired of it. Uh, it's like the original, uh, it was It was a lot better when I started than 15 days later. Hmm. Um, why do you think that is? Um, not, not the better part, but why you looked forward to not? 
Yeah, I don't. Uh, you know what? Life got life was really good for me for four months when I wasn't drinking. I had a lot more clarity in the evenings, uh, a lot less fog in the mornings. I didn't feel as logy. I did manage to put on some some weight while I was on vacation, and I think most of those calories were consumed in liquid form. Um, and I I don't know. I just I don't. You know, the, you know, Paul's language is, you know, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not useful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be mastered by anything. And I felt like I had escaped from being mastered. I'd, lo- yeah. So I thought, you know, holy crap, have I given up a a, a freedom that I had, um, just so that I could enjoy? It. Anyway, I had a lot of anxiety about it, but. Um, you know, and kind of took a deep breath when I got home a week ago and and said, man, I don't have to do that anymore. I haven't had a drink since, haven't missed it, been glad not to. Uh, it's bizarre. So I don't know what the future is. Is the future I drink on vacation? I don't know. Yeah, isn't that isn't that funny that there's it's not like there's a requirement for what your rule parameters are, but the fact right. that you had set it in your mind made it a conflicting deal even though there were no right. enforcers. I mean, that's, I, I go back to when Paul's talking about people eating meat offered to idols. And he says, he calls the people who abstain people with weaker faith. And I right. think we've talked about it on the show before that he's not being insulting to them. And in fact, in every area of my life where I have weak faith, I need rules to keep me from going completely off the rails. The rules serve right. me for a season until my faith is strong enough that I can live free without the rules being the guide rails. Right. Yeah. So acknowledging where I have weaker faith and then having the right kind of rules and letting other people participate, not having secret rules. Boy, I've done that before. I'm sure you never have set up a bunch of yeah. rules in my head that I make sure to not tell anybody because I'm already planning on failing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's in my playbook. Yeah. Um, well, I thought if I told everybody the rules, then I'd kind of be boxed in and, uh, <laughs> and I, I was, I was going to be sure uh, that I wasn't drinking because I declared that I'd stop. I, I was, now I've got the humiliation of having to admit that I didn't stop completely. <laughs> I, or I stopped. Don't, don't think I wasn't cringing when you said that on the podcast. <laughs> I'll bet, yeah. Um, but I, I think that is, yeah, man, the the humility part's great. But I think your point about what are the rules, what is the point of of what we're what I'm doing, is is a great conversation. Um, and I also think we need to take a podcast uh, to talk about the book that inspired you in the first place. Now that sure. I have read it, because I, I think there's some interesting stuff, and he even talks about uh, when he quit smoking, starting smoking again, just as an experiment, yeah. um, which I had a, a similar experience in my past that I'm not going to talk about. Um, but his <laughs> his relapse didn't didn't take, at least yeah. uh, not at all, and I would say for a lot of people, not in the same way. I think that's kind of what you experienced was, okay, this actually didn't end up being the same thing. So there's so much to unpack in what you said. Uh, Thanks for sharing it with everybody. Everybody, people listening right now, let's all say, thanks, Nate. (laughs) 
All right. Hey, we got another great conversation coming up. I've for a long time, Aaron, I've wanted you to meet my friend Ray Kanata. So uh, hang on. We're going to uh, our listeners are going to get to meet him, too. I I guarantee he's going to be one of the most interesting people you've ever encountered. We'll be back in a minute on the Pirate Monk podcast. Seven lonely days and a dozen times ago I reached out one night and you were gone Don't know why you'd run, what you're running to or from All I know is I want to bring you home So I'm walking in the rain, thumbing for a ride on this lonely Kentucky back road I've loved you much too long My love's too strong To let you go Never knowing What went wrong Kentucky rain keeps pouring down And up ahead's another town That I'll go walking With the rain in my shoes Searching for you In the cold Kentucky rain Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, we've got a guest this week uh, I've been wanting to have on the podcast for quite a long time, ever since we met for breakfast down in New Orleans in a January, I don't know, two or three years ago. Uh, he's, this is Ray he's backing Kanata. up to the podcast right now. I hear the backup <laughs> lights, and and here he is. <laughs> Ray Kanata is a pastor, but not like a pastor you have ever met before. Uh, he's a pastor of uh, Redeemer New Orleans. Uh, he's, a, like me, a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, but he went on to, to earn a doctorate at Westminster and do all that kind of stuff. Then went down... Uh, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina to a struggling congregation of about 17 people, I think, yep. uh, to, to serve, to represent uh, Christ there in the big easy. Uh, he's also a filmmaker and a guy of just wild interests. So uh, let me see. You're the, the star of a film, I, I guess the maker of a film called The Man Who Ate New Orleans. Yeah, I started. I didn't make it, but... um. No. Okay. Yeah. You started. Yeah. And in that, uh, you just, uh, I'm going to eat in every uh, local restaurant in New Orleans. Did you yeah. do that? I did. Oh, About 800. Unbelievable. <laughs> 800. <laughs> 800 restaurants. Yeah. That's freaking fantastic. Yeah. Um, also, you bear a striking, a striking resemblance to Elvis, especially when you grow out the sideburns and, <laughs> and gel the hair. And uh, you kind of capitalized on that. You actually march in the Mardi Gras parade as part of the crew of the Flying Elvi. Is that right? Rolling Elvi. Rolling Elvi. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we roll around on kids-sized scooters. <laughs> and, uh, are, and, uh, are you uh, all Elvis impersonators? Yeah, I mean, I'm more tribute artists, I guess you'd say. But uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, it, it's 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 sort of Elvis is just sort of a category. It's big as America. You know, you can do anything with the category of Elvis. So it's all everybody does it in their own way. 
And so they're yeah. wildly creative things and we're always mixing it up. But yeah, it's um, it's year round. Actually, we're in a Christmas parade and East, the big Easter parade, the Halloween parade crew, boo, and a lot of other events. And I used to be in the dance group for a while called the Jailhouse Rockers. I did that for about six years and we performed at like House of Blues and at uh, NBA games before that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Nate. I think I think at least two out of ten listeners have a pastor who's in an Elvis dance group. <laughs> that seems pretty normal. Unbelievable. And and you just put out a book on the Apostles' Creed, so that goes with Elvis, per yeah, just perfectly. In my mind, it's all dovetails. It's all one seamless uh, fabric. Yeah, but. Yeah, yeah. So I do have to ask you, you've been in what uh, was billed nationally, uh, from what I understand, has been a COVID hotspot there in New Orleans. Uh, what's life like during the pandemic down there in the Big Easy? Well, I mean, everybody's everybody's uh, suffering wherever you are in America right now. It's, just, it, it's rough. But we for a little while, we were, yeah, we were, well, first we were being blamed for the spread, right? Because everybody said it was all Mardi Gras or whatever. Yeah. And uh I mean, we and Mardi Gras, we hadn't heard of it. I mean, at that point, it was two or three cases like in Seattle or something. Right. And it was. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty obscure. I don't think anybody can be blamed for not shutting things down. In fact, when they shut things down for a big St. Patrick's Day a month later, everybody got upset. And of course, it was just a week or two after that that we realized the severity of it. Yeah. Why? But uh, yeah, I think for, for a while we were like kind of number one or two hotspots for it. And so it's been it's been rough, but I'll say uh, I'll say this though. I mean, I think in a way it's it's. I don't want to. Everybody thinks their world is the center of the universe, but I do think it's harder on a place like New Orleans than other places. And I'll say why because I think sheltering in place in a lot of places in America is pretty much what they already do. You know, mm-hmm. people are in their yeah. cars all the time. They watch a lot of TV. They're doing things individually. They want to hang out with other people, but they really just don't ever get the time to. And New Orleans is a place where everybody's in everybody's business all the time. And you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I, yeah. have, I haven't owned a car in 15 years, you know, um, my wife's got a car. We put about 4,000 miles a year. It's mostly vacations. I mean, I have a motorcycle I drive every few weeks, but that's about it. I mean, I walk everywhere and I only shop local. I don't buy anything online or Amazon. I'm, I'm you know, I'm eating out of these places. I, I mean, I eat out probably two to three times a day. I hardly ever eat home. And you know, I'm, I'm just, that's fairly normal for this town. Everybody's just out. I'm out for music probably once or twice a week. And so to all of a sudden take that away and be stuck in your house is especially hard in a community like this, that relationships are all they have in a lot of ways. We don't have a product, you know, our, our, our industries are all just relational. It's just people hanging out with people and celebrate. It's, it's the, it's the celebration capital of the country. And when you can't be with people, you can't celebrate. And so I think it's really, really hard. And then also the economy is so based on hospitality uh, that, you know, you take that away where there's no ability to have hospitality. And it's it's like something like 25 percent of the people uh, are in the hospitality industry in one way or another. And um, I mean, the musicians now are suffering hard. I mean, I just got a lot, a lot of musician friends and it's just really hard on them not to be able to perform. They're, They're not studio kind of people. It's live performance people, you know. And I, I mean, I just know a lot of people at 100 percent of their their living is music. They don't have a day job. And, uh, you know, it's and they were living paycheck to paycheck to begin with. And so that that, that part's been really hard. It's been hard in our church because we don't ha- we haven't been program based. We've been sort of relationally based. And, you know, it's just hard to do relationships by Zoom and phone and all the whole so, country's learned. So I was, I was curious, just I mean, with that description of New Orleans and then you saying 
that you have a relationally based church. I'm sure there are a lot of churches that say, oh, we're relationally based too. We do small groups. We we have 40% of people in small groups. We're relationally based. I have a feeling that's not what you meant when you said that. So what did you mean? Well, I mean, we're, I think we are evolving slowly, though, away from being as relationally. And I kind of regret that as relationally based as we were. But for a long time, that's all we had. I mean, we just had worship and and small groups is the only program we had, really, other than rebuilding houses. But even the rebuilding houses, we did it without a committee. I mean, our church were I don't know that any church in the city worked longer. They may not other churches work better and maybe bigger, but no one worked longer and more steady on rebuilding than we did. We were we were eight years where we were pretty much nonstop uh, hosting teams and just rebuilding houses. We hosted our first Easter uh, after reopening. We hosted a um, hundred missionaries. We were only twenty people. You know, it's uh, it just <laughs> absurd. We were rebuilding houses when we were when we were twenty people, and so we were. You know, we were doing that, but we did it without a committee. We never had a committee. So I mean, eventually, we got staff. I mean, and so forth. But it was mostly just telling people, "Hey, can you host the party for the team this week? Hey, can you you have extra space in your living room for them to sleep?" And of course, eventually, we got places for them to sleep and all that. And we got regular stuff, but especially at the beginning, it was just. I mean, really, but for the whole eight years, we really never had a committee for it. So what did that do? Because small groups are great. Let's get in each other's houses and talk. But you're talking about having this ongoing service project that your whole church was a part of for a very extended period of time. What did you see happened relationally? Like, how did that grow the heart of your people to have that piece of community? Yeah, well, um. I'll tell you one thing was we got here and I was, I was so, I mean, obviously I was super, um, torn about even coming. Right. And it's, 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 a, it's too long of a story. We'd take up the whole podcast to try to unfold the whole story, but it came down to just the weird circumstances where I came down, uh, to this church to visit a week before Katrina. And then I had my second interview the day of Katrina, which didn't happen, of course. And I called up the airport like a jackass to cancel my flight. And I was annoyed that nobody answered the phone, you know. They <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm struggling. And in the middle of that, I got a call from another church that was the opposite of Katrina. A great church, but just pretty much the opposite setting. And you know, affluent and whatever and larger and all that. And I ended up, um, I ended up turning them down to come to New Orleans. And I was so... I was so torn about all that. And by the way, the press secretary approved me by one vote when I came down. I thought it was a done deal. You know, I was it was a squeaker, huh? Yeah, yeah. coming here. Right? So <laughs> I fly down for my press secretary transfer exam, and uh, they send me out of the room for two hours, and I hear him screaming for two hours. You know, for the call meeting, and then they call me. They call me back in, and they all applaud and welcome me. I'm like, nope. I know there's somebody here didn't want me, but uh, it wasn't me. It was more the it was just more the weirdness of the call. And, and I, I well, might have yeah, it. that and you were wearing your Elvis outfit. That didn't help. So let's just <laughs> let's not put it all on the Presbyterians here. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so it was you know I, I get here and it's just uh, I had no I, I hadn't even focused on what I was going to do. I was just focused on should I come or not, right? And then I and then I got the car ride down here. My wife literally and I literally went in the proverbial station wagon without a place to live, not knowing a single person here, driving to New Orleans to take my call. I hadn't met anybody in the church really, and I'm uh, I'm coming down. Not the same of them left really anyway, right? But um, yeah. I'm, I'm on my way down, and all of a sudden I panic and I call like Ray Cortez and Mike Kanjan and my friends, and I'm like, "What do I do?" And they're like, "I don't know. You're the idiot that took the job. I have no clue. What are you talking about?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> And so I get here and I'm, and I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm utterly clueless, but the one thing that I figured out 
uh, the one insight that I had that I got from other people, but the one thing I had that really helped and it was really everything was I, I did the opposite of what everybody else, it was kind of counterintuitive. Everybody else was saying you need to have sort of Oprah Winfrey style church, throw your arms around people, get lots of counselors there and just, you know, hug it out with everybody till they can heal. And, you know, we hugged and cried and we weeped along with the members of the church. But the first thing we did beyond that was just to put them to work, because what we realized is the way you heal is to be a healer. People need a meaningful message, you know, and study after study has shown that we, we both blues and reds in this country buy into this. Can you still hear me, by the way? Yep. Yeah, we can. We didn't lose you, right? Okay, my screen just went blank for a second, but okay. Um, you know, blues and reds in this country both buy into different versions of the same uh, story, which is that, you know, it's materialism. It's that, you know, what you have is what's going to make you happy. And what study after study has shown is, no, it's it's what your mission is that makes you happy. I mean, what really makes people content, not that we shouldn't fight hard for people to uh, to have more material things, but at the end of the day, what's going to make them content is their mission. And so the people that there, I mean, I, I came into a city where I was the only one who wasn't a trauma victim here, right? I mean, yeah. you know, and so I walk in and, and pretty much everybody I met other than the National Guard people or whatever, were all trauma victims. And and uh, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I couldn't relate fully or any of that. But I knew I knew that they needed a mission. And so we started healing by being healers and just putting people to work uh, in smaller, big ways, whatever they could handle to help others took the focus off their own thing. So we had one guy in the church who. I was just getting to know. I mean, I met him when I moved here and he'd been at the church. The church only been around about four years before the storm, but he had, he had been around a little bit and he was just dived in. He was helping people with their houses. He was just great with the mission teams. He's taking them on tours. He was a local and knew the, knew, knew the places and was feeding them and all that. And then I find out two or three weeks later that his house got destroyed. And he was living in a trailer. I didn't know that yet. And so I'm like, what are you doing, man? Mike, what are you doing? And he's just, you know, what I realized is, you know, he could handle, he could cope with what happened to his house. And it was a long, it was a long haul to get his house back up and running, but he could handle that as long as he knew he was helping other people. And of course, right away, we re- redirected the teams to his house. He kind of resisted, but I, I guilted him in front of everybody. I called him out in the middle of the worship service. It's like sometimes, you know, I preached from Acts and a, a miracle Jesus did. And I said, Hey, sometimes it's harder to, to receive than to give, you know? And, uh, and he, you know, he really needed to do us a blessing. He needed to let, let us help him, you know? And, um, but anyway, uh, that, that was, that was, that was the one insight we had and it made all the difference. We didn't have any divorce. We didn't have any suicide. We had one of the first guys that were new to the church that, you know, we were at a prayer meeting and he just started weeping. He'd never been around church before. And he said, you know, what really attracted me, you guys, wasn't your programs, obviously it wasn't because you were so good looking because you're a bunch of freaks, but you know, what it was, was you were, you had hope. I felt hope here. You know, and, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's all the gospel really has anyway. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I uh, say, Ray, I know that, uh, New Orleans is a multiracial city. I'm wondering, uh, have the racial tensions that, uh, have been felt in so many other American cities, including Nashville, including yeah. Charleston, where I was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, have you experienced the same thing in New Orleans? And if so, how is the church responding? Well, a uh, few things. I'd say uh, yes and no, we've experienced it. I mean, for sure, the city 70% African-American, just, just a little under 70% African-American, um, Mayor, uh, with one exception, a few years ago, the mayor's been African American for you know forty years. Police chief, oh, mm-hmm. all that, and um, my neighborhood's a little a uh, little less. Uh, I'm in the city, but my neighborhood's a little less uh, black than than most of the neighborhoods in the city. It's not the whitest neighborhood, but it's it's a little less than average, and our 
our church is a neighborhood church. Um, but we, um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, while we have, we've had the tension for sure. And it's been rough, obviously for all things we could talk about forever. But, um, one thing that's interesting is we didn't really have the looting or the violence or the rioting at all that most, that a lot of cities have experienced. And I think that has something to do with some of the legacy of the way that the, that the government has, uh, dealt with racial tensions here. And it, I, I won't say that it's done much better, but it, it's been a little different, a little more inclusive in a lot of ways. And I think that helped. And another thing that helped was there was a humility with the police. You know, it was one of the cities that made the news where the police would kneel down in front of the, in front of the protesters, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of submissive role in a way. And, um, I mean, there was one incident finally on the seventh or eighth day where they, um, where they, they, uh, they, after repeated warnings, the police, uh, you know, did, did some tear gas. It was the lowest grade of the four kinds that apparently mm-hmm. and it was, uh, and they did shoot some rubber bullets. They're more rubber balls. They showed a demonstration. They shot them at some barrels and it didn't even, you know, move them or knock them over or whatever, you know, trash cans. But I mean, it's still, it had to do with safety. There was the, the group was trying to get up on a bridge that had no railing and it would have, somebody oh. would have died for sure, you know? And they, and anyway, so at first people were critical at the end of the day, the NAACP president actually criticized the, um, the protesters rather than the police and the police, but, but, uh, criticized them both for it. Um, but anyway, that's the closest we've had to like an ugly incident in the thing. I think it's been pretty good. I mean, we've had a lot of like sort of impromptu tearing down of statues everywhere and that kind of thing, but not the burning or looting that you've, you've seen in other places and all that. And I think it's partly because the police have, have, um, you know, have known what have been more involved in the community here, maybe a little bit. And I say that not to minimize cases of brutality and abuse and things that have definitely happened in New Orleans, like everywhere else. And, uh, yeah. Um, do, do you think when you were talking earlier, just about, you know, having these purposes, uh, I was thinking some of the core ways we can develop community is we get together because we're all against something or we can get together because we're all for something. And when you said healing people heal people, I just thought, how many times have I heard or probably said in the past that hurt people hurt people, which is totally true. Yeah. But that's still just the negative side of a beautiful, redemptive truth. And never in my life have I heard anyone say that. And yet that is the moving towards something. So even with the, the, racial diversity that you're in does that just become less of the issue when you're focusing on moving towards something and when do you find now we need to pause because of our racial diversity and deal with some of these things because i think there's a danger in stopping but there's a danger in never stopping yeah well that's that's huge um Man, I don't even know what to say to that. I'd say one thing. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm, that our elders I and mean, we've gone together a couple times and just been really brainstorming, trying to pray about, you know, why our own church has been very ineffective at. Um, at I mean, I think we've we minister with and 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 for um, you know people of color in the city and have from the beginning, but uh, we haven't really. Um, our church hasn't really experienced uh, great racial diversity. You know, we we were. Um, it was members of our church that started another biracial uh, church in um, in New Orleans, St. Rock uh, Church, PCA Church, um, like ours, uh, with our blessing and support and all that. But um, but we uh, we we have not um, succeeded in that area well. And one of the things we've been doing is just trying to sort of marinate in the discomfort of it right now and trying to trying to um, understand ourselves better. And of course, we're getting outside help for doing that too. 
Um, and that's, that's beginning, uh, in earnest in a couple more weeks, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we got, we got a ways to go, but I do think the, uh, the gospel has potential to really make a difference in ways that other things can't in this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's it like to serve as a pastor in a city that's just known for debauchery? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I say to people is I really think that New Orleans is a better picture of, of hell than any place I know in America. It's also a better picture of heaven than any place I know in America. The, the beauty of New Orleans is it doesn't have that in-between stuff. Most of America lives on the in-between stuff. And any system uh, wants there to be the in-between stuff because that's how you control people and manage them well, you know? And uh, Robert Moses made a whole career out of uh, making sure that everything in America would be gray, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he succeeded largely in the trajectory he got us on. But, I mean, uh, nice thing about New Orleans is, I, and I say this to anybody, no matter where you live, find the place where you can find hellish things and heavenly things there and go towards that, you know? Because I really think there's two things. I don't have much figured out in life, but I got these two things I think kind of figured out maybe. And that is uh, you, need to, you need to find things to enjoy. God wants you to have things to celebrate that look like heaven, and you, he wants you to have things to redeem and to fix like hell. The rest of the stuff, as much as you can, try to discard it, ignore it, get away from it, you know? And the trick with New Orleans is trying to find that balance between the hellish and the heavenly. Now, people think the debauchery is hellish uh, from a Christian perspective. I think a lot of it's heavenly. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's a mix. Uh, and I think... Um, you know, I mean, I, I take Mardi Gras, for example, if, if you haven't experienced Mardi Gras, people have a picture of like these videos from Bourbon Street. You know, Bourbon Street actually doesn't have any parades, right? There's not a single Mardi, you know, Mardi Gras is a series of parades that goes over about two weeks. Yeah, It's longer than that, but the, the, the highlight of it is the last sort of like 11 days. It's every night and uh, during the day sometimes too. And uh, none of those go anywhere near Bourbon Street. They stop at Canal Street. Bourbon Street is set up for tourists, uh, you know, that think they're supposed to flash for beads or whatever. I mean, I'm I'm in about five parades uh, a season, four parades at least, and I, I don't, you know, I've seen I, I, I've seen maybe two people flash ever during a parade. That's not what happens in normal parades, you know. So, and and uh, one of them was a guy named Jim. So that, that really I didn't enjoy either one. Right. Exactly. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's it. what it is, is it's a lot more like a picture of heaven. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's the, when the city's at its most diverse in terms of like people mixing together, sharing things together. The crowd is just every and not just racial diversity, age and locals and tourists and whatever, uh, young and old. I mean, the sweet spot, the people who people enjoy Mardi Gras parades, the absolute most, I think, are like 11 year old boys, I think, you know, maybe or that or eight year old girls. I mean, it's really it's really set for it's really set for sort of a childish but creative kind of do it yourself kind of in, in some ways, you know, it's the opposite of Macy's Day. Parade. I grew up in New York City and then in suburbs. And, you know, Macy's Day Parade is one big advertisement for Disney and Broadway plays that's highly choreographed. The singers are lip syncing. The whole parade's less than a mile. It's all set up for the cameras. The commentators are reading scripts. And they're basically, you're pushing yourself there to watch advertisements, right? So they can sell yeah. you things. Mardi Gras is the exact opposite. Everybody in the parade is sacrificing to uh, spend a bunch of money and spend a lot of time and make a lot of effort and plan year round to throw a free party for the world and give them stuff, you know, and (laughs) they're great, you know. It's kind and, of ironic. It sounds like Burning Man, but with more clothes, which is unexpected. <laughs> uh, but anyway, if you want to see nudity in New Orleans, public nudity in the streets, it's year round. It's not just Mardi Gras anyway. You know, it's uh, uh, 
there was a newscast a couple days ago. They were showing from Bourbon Street. They were showing um, uh, what what it looks like with the restaurants and the bars finally reopened, right? Uh, yeah. And and uh, it made it on the screen. They didn't even notice there was a stark naked man. I mean, not a stitch of clothes on. The only thing he had on in the background of the picture was a mask. He was the only one that was masked. Everybody <laughs> else, <laughs> no clothes, but he was going to wear his mask. And the other funny part about that picture was. Uh, the 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 uh the, the other people walking around didn't notice him. You know, it was <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and uh, he just stand there by himself, kind of a, a not very shapely, uh, middle aged, completely nude man with a mask. You know, yeah. COVID mask. But I mean, so uh, but I mean, New Orleans is a it's a place of celebration. Heaven seen as a feast. You know, Jesus' first miracle is he makes so much wine that you know. That that uh you know that 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 they're telling them what you know everybody's drunk already why are you why are you why are you saving the best wine for last when everybody's already buzzed you know he's making it by the barrel full um yeah. you know he's he's the bartender that just uh you know throws this uh, open bar for everybody uh and you know and 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 the feasts are uh, the picture of feasting in the Bible that that are compared to heaven by Jesus and also in in Revelation are just uh, are 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 uh, just unending right. And New Orleans yeah. is a place that's like that. You know, you order a dozen oysters and they bring you 20, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's just that kind of place. And it's a place of sharing, too, you know, that really just enjoys the diversity of people. You know, I mean, when I first got here, I was afraid to tell people I was at, you know, I meet people at bars or at music clubs and then people ask what you do. And I was so sheepish to say I'm a minister. I thought it would kill conversation like it used to when I was in Jersey. And it was, it had the opposite effect here. People were like, oh, F, yeah, that sounds like an F and great job. Tell me about that. You know, I never met a minister before. <laughs> you know? And, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's sort of like people just appreciate people that are different here. There's less judgment, you know, and, um, in general. And, I, you know, I really like that. So, I mean, it's a heavenly place now. It's also hellish. I mean, it's a place that had the, uh, has had the highest murder rate for, I think my first 10 years here, I think we're down to number two or three now, but, uh, for a while it was, uh, for a little while it was 2007 or eight, I think it was a hundred per hundred thousand, which was kind of worse than Afghanistan, you know? Uh, wow. really rough, uh, historic violence. Also, um, poverty rates, ridiculous before the, before the storm, there was 128 public schools in the world. I think 126 of them were scored as failing by Louisiana, which is like 49th in the country in, in public wow. schools, you know, it was the worst of, uh, 70 something parishes. That's like counties. Uh, I think 77, it was the worst in the state. Um, now I think we're right in the middle of the pack, which is kind of interesting. Charter schools have made a big difference with the public schools, but, um, but anyway, uh, you know, uh, historic racism, uh, all kinds of uh, just all kinds of terrible things. And, uh, you know, of course, addictions and alcohol abuse and all kinds of stuff that have been bad here. It's a place of refuge. It's a place where, you know, the black sheep would all come and congregate together. And, you know, that can be trouble sometimes. And um, so, you know, there's some hellish things, there's a lot to fix, you know, in terms of uh, even from a Christian perspective on a, on um, outreach, I mean, you know, it's it's not the Bible Belt. You know, you're not looking at Birmingham or Jackson in terms of uh, church attendance. You know, it's close right. to uh, Seattle and Boston in terms of attendance. Although affiliation is pretty high, so you have a lot of people that will you fill out surveys that they have a church. They're not the village atheist, but they haven't been there in 20 years. You know, uh, wow. I'll ask guys in my crew, kind of like, oh, so so you uh, you go to church anywhere? Oh yeah, I'm Catholic. Oh, where do you go? Oh, St. Francis. What's the name of the priest? Damned if I know. You know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I went last Easter. Wait, I didn't go last Easter. I went the Easter before. No, I didn't go that Easter either. I got, I got, I was hungover. Oh, maybe that's, you know, and then it, and then it comes, it turns out they haven't been in 20 years, you know? And um, yeah. So you have this sort of, it's sort of like, like kind of Italy Catholics, you know, when they took the crucifixes out of the classrooms in, in uh, public school classrooms in Italy in the nineties, 
Rome had its largest protest in 20 years. It was a million people. And then they did a survey and they realized only about 20,000 had been at mass the week before. So only one in 50 of the people at protests had actually gone to mass, but they were mad to put the crucifixes out. You know, that's New Orleans. We name things after saints and Mardi Gras itself is actually a quasi-religious holiday and all that. But, um, but it's uh, Christmas break is still Christmas break instead of winter break in the public schools and all that. But it's just not a place where people actually practice the faith much or have much of a meaningful connection to faith community. So, and that way it's just a great opportunity because people don't have any pretenses that they're, you know, that they're, uh, you know, it's not like the Bible belt stuff. There's no Christendom here really. Well, the, the church, uh, Redeemer, uh, New Orleans has enjoyed some pretty remarkable growth since you got there. Um, how are, where do the new folks come from? How, how are those connections made? Well, I mean, initially it was all relationship, and I think it still is largely. I don't think anybody comes because of our fantastic programs because we just don't have them, you know. But yeah. you know, I think it's more word of mouth. I think people are are, are um, glad about their church and they're willing to share it with people. And um, I think for a while we, it was because of a lot of mercy ministry we were doing. That's that's kind of scaled down a little bit now. I mean, in 2007, we spent two-thirds of our budget on compassion ministry. We were spending twice as much on that as we were on everything else, the rent and the salaries and everything else put together. Wow. Uh, that's that's changed now. We're down quite a bit from that point. But um, but yeah, there's a little bit of that. I think it's, uh, I you know, I, I don't really know. I don't know why people show up, to be honest, because I'm a uh, you know, I'm kind of a mediocre preacher and we got, you know, we got, uh, we don't have any, uh, great facilities. We're still renters and, um, not a lot of great programs, but, but people come, I think, because of the, the, um, the power of the gospel and, and shown out in relationships. And it sounds kind of yeah. cheesy to say, but I, I, I feel like that's, uh, that's, that's about all we got. Wow. And, um, that's beautiful. That, that sounds like just, just enough. Yeah. <laughs> You know, on the subject of celebration in heaven, I, you know, one of my most pleasant memories, Alex, my, it was a few years ago, we were in New Orleans for a windstorm conference. It's the same trip where we, we met you for breakfast. Mm. Uh, but one evening we're, we're, we're at dinner, not on Bourbon Street, but close to Bourbon Street. We're having another fantastic meal. I found you can't buy a bad meal in New Orleans. Very good cult. Oh, just unbelievable food. Uh. And, uh. Uh, we're sitting by a window and, uh, and we hear Allie, Allie goes, what's, what's that? She hears music. She looks out the window and she sees that there, uh, there is a parade and she gets so excited and abandons the table and goes out onto the sidewalk. And this, you know, this impromptu parade goes by and people are filtering from the sidewalk to join the parade and Allie and Allie then jumps into the parade and followed it for blocks and just she wasn't an eight-year-old girl but for a moment she was yeah yeah uh yeah it was and i just it was i couldn't stop grinning it was just fantastic and i wonder you know have we have we in the church have we in recovery kind of lost a little bit of the joy and celebration that really is rightfully ours could we benefit from a little more partying? Absolutely. I mean, I, what, what, one of the things I said was, um, well, 
I mean, one of our unofficial slogans of the church was, you know, uh, Redeemer Church, you know, come for the scotch, stay for the doctrine, you know, but <laughs> we said, <laughs> you're so <laughs> lucky you're Presbyterian. That would not fly in a Baptist church. Any Baptist listeners right now, you can suck it. You know, this is, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're just jealous because we're always puny. We don't, we don't have much else, but we got, uh, we got, we got, we got scotch at least. Right. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what. I, I, I've learned, you know, I, I celebrate how, you know, I hope we're having some kind of small impact on New Orleans, but greater is the way that New Orleans has had an impact on us is teaching us how to be Christian. Because in in many ways, you know, the gospel is really about uh, celebration in the end, right? I mean, that's the, that's the end game. And we're, we're moving towards this, uh, this uh, unfettered celebration of the Lord for eternity. And um, here's a place where people are made in God's image and they bear his image, cracked as we all are, and it comes out. And uh, and somehow we have to unlearn what the church teaches us about celebration. You know, I mean, potlucks are just miserable in a lot of ways at churches, right? And I remember um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a nice church in my, you know, before I came here. I was 14 years on staff in another church. and But our potlucks maybe weren't the greatest. Maybe they are now, but at the time they weren't, you know, fantastic. And uh, I got down here and... About week two, people said, "Hey, when are we going to have something after church?" And I, and I and I was dreading it. I was like, "No, don't ruin it. I'm having a good time here. Don't let's not spoil it." And so finally, <laughs> I got all this pressure, and then finally, I announced it sort of impromptu from the pulpit, like I hadn't even planned it. I was just like, "Okay, so people want to come over to my house afterwards. You know, anybody bring your friends. Uh, you know, and um, and we'll see what we can do. We'll have we'll put together kind of a potluck or something. You know, and uh, well, okay, so we had 40 people in worship that day. We had like 60 at the at the potluck." And yeah. uh, three hours later, somebody I'd never met was sleeping in my bed. Uh, a couple people broke instruments <laughs> they were playing. You know, we had, uh, you know, all this just leftovers. And I was like, what is going on here? You know, we need this. This is they're onto something here. So I realized, I mean, that, that New Orleans is a lot to teach the church about celebration. Now, the church can teach New Orleans why to celebrate, because at the end, they're celebrating to forget things like the rest of the world is. Uh, we can celebrate because we know the bridegroom's returning, you know, and that's the best reason yeah. to celebrate. And so, you know, I think the church ought to be the best celebrators in the end. And it's kind of sad that we're that we're that we're not. We hold back, you know, for different reasons. We're worried that, you know, we have valid concerns, but then we we allow that to kill everything. We chop off our foot over a stub toe. I mean, um, so, you know, we worry about with addictions, for example, being our presence. And I'll tell you, we have a lot of people that, that are that are sober and, uh, you know, and and are, um, you know, uh, al- you know, al- alcoholics that are working on it that come to our parties and they don't fall off the wagon and they're, you know, and um, it's possible. It's just, you know, take extra love and attention, but you know, they want to be at the party too. I mean, one guy's a, uh, one guy's been in, uh, in recovery for years and he's a uh, he's, he's our bartender at the, at, at, you know, and he mixes for everybody else, you know, and uh, he really is. I mean, he's designated bartender at our, at our, at our uh, Halloween party. And um, you know, it's, wow. it's a blessing and to him. To he's to wa- he's watering party. down everybody's drinks. <laughs> so, so here, give me. Uh, I am curious to get a, some practical advice since you have served in this joyous community. Philippians is a rough book for me because I'm a generally peppy and optimistic person, but we're not just commanded to have joy, but to rejoice, to somehow mm. enact and embody joy. I hate that. I hate. Imbo- I grew up in a brethren church. Enacting joy is suspicious. You're you're mm. hiding something. So I feel incredibly sad at my awkwardness in the rejoicing department, especially 
when I'm feeling joy. So what would New Orleans say, Aaron? Step one to learn how to get out of the way and rejoice would be? Oh, man, it's hard. I'd say get, surround yourself with people that do it well, you know? Uh, I mean, I feel like I've been at school for uh, this. This city's like a, a an, and it, you know, it's not a thing you can graduate from in a few weeks. I feel like it's an ongoing, lifelong process, right? But I feel like I'm in a school for joy here in a lot of ways, you know. Um, uh, you just got to practice it, get in the middle of it, around people that are experts at it, and people are experts at, at uh, every joy around here, you know. And by the way, this is another test that shows the circumstances can't be the determinant of joy because. I, I, I'm positive that New Orleans is the joy capital of uh, the country, and it's also the misery capital of the country. And somehow those go together, you know. Uh, no place had uh, a natural disaster like Katrina, and that wasn't the first one. They've had a whole bunch. There's a reason why the oldest school of public health in the country, which is from Tulane, was centered in New Orleans. It was started in New Orleans because uh, we had the Bronze John pandemic, which is the big one before the before the Spanish flu in 1918. 1850s, uh, 4,000 people in the city when it was only 250,000 died from malaria. You know, um, it's been a place wow. of constant misery. Um, so, so wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that we truly cannot learn to engage joy and rejoicing if we're ignoring suffering? That we have to know how to experience suffering to ever know how to be a people who rejoices. Is that absolutely. What you're yes, absolutely. Boy, you say it better than I do. Why don't you, uh, <laughs> you can take over here. Yeah, that's right. I think that's true. That's don't a, you? That's, yeah, I do. I think that's an incredibly deep and important thought, especially but for the culture, tells you, the culture tells you you need to be numb. The culture takes basically a Buddhist attitude towards joy, right? At the end of the day, basically it's telling you don't get too attached to things. Don't commit to anything, right? Mm-hmm. Keep your attachments mild. It's sort of Buddhist light, right? Keep your attachments mild. And uh, and here we're going to offer you some things that are a little fun and distracting. We're going to give you fast food that's going to be a sugar high and a salt high, but doesn't actually taste very good. You know, we're going to we're gonna watch things on a flat screen where there's no interaction and you have the control of the child changer instead of being with people that can give you crap you don't want to hear, right. but also can give you great joys. You know, but this, and this, I think- is, this is super confusing, though, because we're also taught that we're supposed to pray that suffering stops. And if God doesn't fix it, then we're in a crisis of faith, which seems to imply that God's all about stopping suffering, where that <laughs> doesn't seem to bear out. Yeah, sort of like the cross. Is that? <laughs> well, well, yeah, obviously that we, we got to ignore that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, I, no. I mean, that can yeah. be confusing, right? To know how to engage it in such a way that also leads to joy coming in the morning. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's why we have uh, community, because we need to remember each other. Because we live in the moment, and we need to remind each other of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. So, Ray, I want to know, uh, what motivated you to want to write a book about the Apostles' Creed? And what can you tell us about that book, the project, why you did it? Uh, you just watched Rocky a lot as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I mean, I, you know, back to what I said about being clueless. I wasn't being falsely modest. I really was floundering around down here. I had no clue what to do. Um, I'd seen a lot of church planning in Metro New York Presbytery. I was the first guy ordained in Metro New York Presbytery when it got started. We were eight churches. Keller's was one and mine was one. And uh, I'd seen a lot of church planners and all that stuff in urban church life. I'd seen a lot of theory, but I've been living in the burbs for a long time. Um, and so, I, you know, on paper I had that. But New Orleans isn't, is, doesn't fit anybody's categories, you know. 
And, uh, and so I, and also everything was sort of more theory than practice for me. And so, uh, I'm floundering around. And one of the things was we had a lot of unchurched people showing up at the church. We still, we still do to an extent. Uh, but for a while it was mostly that, you know, or lightly church people. And they're all in their twenties and, and people who, uh, you know, sort of family misfits. Uh, some of them have been, had church families as kids, but that sort of thing. And, uh, I was struggling to figure out a way to meaningfully, um, uh, shape people's, uh, help people shape their Christian identity around, uh, Christian truths in, in our proclamation. And of course the apostles creed at some point I realized, well, this is something that's been cross-cultural. It's been used in every country where the, where the gospel's gone for 2000 years. Other, uh, great confessions have served their purpose and gone, you know, by the wayside, but the creed remains and it remains being used around the world. And it's still the most widely used creed. Uh, through all different theological traditions, all different denominations and cultures. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe we could start with this as sort of a, a way to sort of shape our teaching in a, in a lived practical way. And so I started developing things for that and in, in my teaching and preaching. And then from that, it, people suggested, you know, putting this together for a book and it did, and it ended up being useful to some other folks. And also uh, I had a, an intern uh, back in Jersey about 20 years ago from, he was at Princeton and, uh, when I was pastoring there and, um, he, he was also playing a church a little bit after me. And so he, uh, wanted to borrow some materials. He improved on them a whole bunch and we started trading it back and forth. And, uh, that between the two of us, we gave each other encouragement to put this thing together and really been amazed at how it kind of took off. And it's been a blessing for other people. Yeah. Well, that is available on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, rooted. Yep. Yes. Rooted. The Apostles Creed second edition, which is way better than the first one. Since so much the, better. Yeah. Cause the Apostles Creed got updated in 2007 changed significantly. Uh, so check that out. How else can listeners check out what you're up to? Maybe get some pictures of dancing Elvises. Elvi. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll come down for a parade. We pretty much have them year round. So just come down anytime. But, uh, yeah, there's that. I do actually get recognized for all these different things in, in parades. People will be, I'll be like, how did you know Pastor Ray? It's like, what? How did you know from, I'm wearing this gold LeMay jumpsuit and I got this giant wig on and, you know, just bizarre stuff. But, uh, yeah. And there's also, uh, since the COVID thing, uh, I've always been against recording the server. I'm weird about that. I just, I feel like worship is supposed to be done in person and it's, it's in a larger context and it's of a series and all that. And so I want people to come visit for worship. I don't really like posting stuff, but, um, we post a sample on the webpage, but during this COVID thing we had to, right. So started recording all these services from home and from my office. And so now we're continuing. We reopened a couple of weeks ago in a very limited way. We have seats for a thousand in the, uh, in the, in the sanctuary there. And we, we, we've, had it under a hundred we've limited it to. So plenty of social distancing, but for the rest uh, and for anyone else and living anywhere else, they can watch on YouTube, our services. Um, can't say we're blowing up YouTube anytime soon. There's not, no one's offering me any uh, advertising dollars or anything for that, but. Uh, so there's room to watch. If you go on YouTube space is available for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Nice. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I only know people that left New Orleans, and uh, now that I'm within driving distance, I really want to take my kids down there. So I'm going to have to hit you up to find out when a parade is and uh, find out where we should eat. 
Oh, yeah. Well, Ray, this has been so uh, inspiring and entertaining and uh, educational. Thank you so much for finding time, making time in your schedule to talk with us and with uh, our listeners on the Pirate Monk podcast. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk podcast. I believe in God the Father. Maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ is only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and dead and buried. And now We are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. That was fun. An Elvis impersonating past Presbyterian. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got to tell you, uh, you know, I didn't give you any details during the conversation, but you know, the one time that I met Allie and I met Ray for breakfast down in New Orleans. First of all, he recommended a place that we hadn't been to. It. You know, he, he just went, oh, probably the best breakfast in New Orleans. And it was freaking fantastic. If you want to, if you, a guy who has eaten at 800 restaurants in New Orleans is reliable. He'll give you a good recommendation. Uh, but then the conversation was just, I didn't know what to expect from a pastor. And somehow the Kennedy assassination came up. I don't know how, but he was able to talk. Uh, he talked, I, I, it was amazing what I learned about the Kennedy assassination and its connection to New Orleans from uh, a guy who loves Jesus, but can, but is literate on a whole lot of subjects. Including conspiracy theory. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was uh, anyway. Well, that's, that's awesome. I, I really would love to get back down there. I have not been there since I was 10 and spent the 4th of July in the swamps outside of uh, New Orleans, swimming with alligators with local Cajun kids and having the best food of my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, maybe we need a Samson road trip to New Orleans. Oh, man. Yes, please. I will get myself a new sleeveless fishnet shirt like I wore the first time in 1986. <laughs> and we will hit the road. <laughs> I wonder if we can sign up any other pirate monks to go down and visit Ray in New Orleans. All right. Well, there you go. You just threw out the invitation. So, or the gauntlet. I'm not sure which. We know We know his church can host up to 100 people. If we can just sell him that we're actually a missions group there to do service work. Yes. There you go. We will serve the local restaurants in eating their wares. <laughs> All right. We need a beignet, baby. Come on. Yeah. Now, now, Aaron, you and I are going to have to be innovative uh, again this summer in the way we record the podcast. We're going to have to rely on technology because you, you're leaving town again, aren't you? Yep. We head out on July 7th. Uh, my daughter and I will be flying to California where I will 
be working and playing some music and um she's going to be visiting her friends and going to her summer camp which is now a day camp which still might not happen because california is evidently freaking out all over again yeah yeah all right so yeah well we'll we'll be gone for five weeks but you and i have not been able to meet in person for quite some time so we will be all right yeah okay we're but we're going to keep up i'm booking some great guests we're going to keep up the uh, uh recording schedule here and uh listeners we'd love to hear from you Go ahead, drop us a line at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. I guess that's it, Aaron. You got anything else? I got nothing else. <laughs> well, then, uh, until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg. Switch.